You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, May 13th. I'm Fei Lu. And I'm Leila Dus. Gun violence is up in New York City. The number of shootings by civilians has doubled since last year. Mayor de Blasio has a plan to lower that number, but it's receiving mixed reviews. Why would you add more police when you know what the police have been doing to our communities? Training for guide dogs is on hold due to the pandemic. That's an issue for blind and visually impaired New Yorkers. I completely trust this this animal. I completely trust my dog because New York City is hard. The Met plans to be an early voting site, and the city has come up with some innovative ways to get people vaccinated. And coastal seaweed is now part of the effort to combat climate change. The kelp is, is something that we can use in this moment to help address climate change, create jobs, and feed the planet. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News, I'm Kat Smith. Governor Andrew Cuomo announced today that the federal government has approved plans for four new Metro North train stops in the East Bronx. He said the new stations will dramatically slash commuting times for underserved neighborhoods and residents who work downtown. It is going to be transformative for these communities. They are going to be transformed. The entire Bronx, the entire region. The governor said the new stations will open in 2025. Today marks the last day of the holy month of Ramadan, but worshipers who arrived at the Taiba Islamic Center in Brooklyn for morning prayers today found the entrance vandalized with blue spray paint. The NYPD's hate crime unit is investigating. And on Wednesday, authorities in Florida apprehended a man suspected of injuring three people in a shooting in Times Square last weekend. Today, the man appeared before a Florida judge who ordered him to be held without bail, pending an extradition hearing. The city is rolling out new incentives to encourage more New Yorkers to get vaccinated against COVID-19. For the next month, Shake Shack restaurants will offer free burgers and fries when you show your vaccine card. Mayor Bill de Blasio made the announcement today while chowing down on some fast food. Some people love hamburgers, some don't. Really want to respect all ways of life. But if this is appealing to you, just think of this when you think of vaccination. Mm. New York State vaccination rate dropped 41% in the last month. The Shake Shack offer is one of a slew designed to drive up those numbers. We'll have more on that later in the show. Weather today, 68 and sunny uptown with those early summer vibes. Highs in the 70s the next few days. Kat Smith, Columbia Radio News. The CDC announced this afternoon that fully vaccinated people do not need to wear a mask indoors or outdoors. There are some exceptions, including public transportation, nursing homes, and homeless shelters. Katie Anastas hit the streets to ask New Yorkers, what are they most looking forward to mask-free? Christy Delisio was sitting at a restaurant patio when she heard the news. I already feel like life is changing. Ever since the vaccine, I feel like everything's moving towards a positive way. Delisio said she's most excited about live entertainment. I really like jazz music, so any concert or festival, I'm there. <laughs> but not everyone was ready to get back into big crowds. Some will start smaller. Bill Schrader said he's looking forward to visiting friends at home again. Hanging out in somebody's house, you're sitting on the couch, you're talking, laughing, singing, whatever. 
Musician Alexi Glick said he hopes to perform live again. In the meantime... And I'm just looking forward to, like, honestly being in a bar, drunk, and hugging my friends. Only a third of Americans have been fully vaccinated so far. Experts hope the new guidelines will motivate people to get their shots. Katie Anastas, Columbia Radio News. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Fei Lu. Over three quarters of all New Yorkers have already had their first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, New York City is doing everything it can to convince those last two million to get the jab. And that means they're sweetening the deal. Free Yankees tickets, donuts, and now, Metro cards. Carrie Manirajo went to Grand Central Terminal to see whether bribery could get New York's numbers up. From Wednesday, May 12th to Sunday, May 16th, New Yorkers can get a free seven-day Metro card after they get the single-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And the perks don't stop there. With a the vaccine, you could head to the aquarium, the zoo, the botanical garden, all for free. Anyone who's not gotten vaccinated, now is the time. And we want to make it easier, and we want to make it fun, and we want to give you some incentives. Researchers say there's evidence that incentives work. Stephen Higgins, the director of the Vermont Center on Behavior and Health, recently published a paper about strategies to increase vaccine adherence. Financial incentives can be quite helpful in uh, improving adherence to vaccine regimens. Cash is the best because it, it, it's the least restrictive. I spent an hour talking to people in Grand Central. Encouragingly, everyone I spoke to was vaccinated and on board with the program. Um, I got the Johnson & Johnson about a month ago or so. It's, tr it's trustworthy. Like, you should get a vaccine. They have clinical trials that prove that these things work. So you should get it. And it's an incentive. And if people think of it as buying their trust, sure, their trust should be bought. It is trustworthy. And now you get some free rides on the subway. Awesome. My name's Alex Ivenchik. I'm a psychiatry resident in the Bronx. I think that there are some cases where incentivizing for public health could be detrimental to sort of even people's independent thinking process. But in this situation particularly, I do think that it's necessary to try to get people to get vaccinated, not just for their individual purposes, but for society at large. Karen Moniraho, Columbia Radio News. New York City's Democratic candidates for mayor will have their first official debate tonight. Andrew Yang and Eric Adams, the two frontrunners in that race, have both drawn criticism over their comments on the incidents unfolding between Israel and Palestine. I'm joined today by Neil Quatra, a Democratic political strategist. He's here to discuss the political calculus that happens when local candidates weigh in on international issues. Um, you know, voters are, are looking for uh, a leader who is going to demonstrate, I think, some vision um, and some ability to lead the city forward through what will be, I think, a critical, you know, few years of recovery. Public safety and crime are increasingly um, an issue. Yeah, and to add to that, you know, in terms of priorities, it seems like foreign policy and stances on Things like Israel-Palestine have been a huge priority this year. In your opinion, why is it that we're talking more about Israel-Palestine right now? Has the conversation changed as it relates to mayoral elections? Or has this always been an issue? Well, it's always been an issue. I mean, there is a unique, I think, historic relationship between New York City um, and Israel. But New York's also a changing, diverse place. And I think 
we have a large and significant um, Muslim population. These issues are increasingly, I think, uh, more fraught and nuanced, whereas in the past, I think you had a much more, um, uh, uh, let's just call it, um, positioning that often favored Israel. And it seems like some of the more progressive candidates, like Diane Morales, for example, um, even took it a step further and, and are calling uh, publicly made statements calling what's happening um, in Palestine apartheid, which rec- which symbolizes a shift in the conversation. So, do you think this this also means a change in the voting block, or like why do you think that is? I do think that Diane um, and her rhetoric around this issue and her positioning absolutely unequivocally reflects um, a particular point of view of uh, a group of New Yorkers. Um, It may not be a majority at this stage, but I do think it is representative of a a changing uh, dynamic. Yeah, and on that note, do you think progressive candidates like Morales actually have a shot this time? I mean, it seems like there's a rise, uh, like you said, of a progressive voting bloc. Well, there's definitely an animated and I think increasingly organized um, center-left progressive, um, you know, from the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, they're still um, a minority. They're a, a vocal minority and a significant minority that can swing a primary election. Uh, and so I think they will unequivocally make their voices heard. I think the question is, will they coalesce around a candidate, given that they have a few options? Mr. Neil Quatra. Democratic political strategist, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. New York State is under fire for a lack of diversity in New York City's eight specialized high schools. Critics say the elite schools don't enroll enough Black and Latinx students. And they say the specialized high school admissions test is the reason why. Advocates recently introduced a bill that would scrap the entrance exam. Haley Jaw reports. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It's 4 o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. School's out, but about 30 student activists from all over the city are gathered outside of Stavison High. Tatiana Cruz is a junior at Brooklyn Tech. She's holding a black canvas sign that says, Repeal Hack Calandra, Abolish SHSAT. We're trying to get more physical action out there, you know, because there's a lot of infographics and there's a lot of information, but there's not enough action. Cruz is protesting with student advocacy group Teens Take Charge. The group is working with politicians in Albany to repeal the Hack Calendra Act. Back in the 1970s, the act made the specialized high school admissions test the sole criteria for admissions to New York's eight specialized high schools. Cruz took the test three years ago. You know, I would spend summers like before, beforehand another program trying to study for the exam and I would cancel vacations. I didn't really spend time with my family to study for the test. But I ended up not passing anyway. Black and Latino students like Cruz make up more than two-thirds of the public student body in New York City. But just 9% of new students admitted to the city's eight specialized high schools this year were Black or Latinx. That's the lowest rate in three years. Mayor de Blasio and other education officials said the test further school segregation. In 2018, de Blasio proposed amending the act. 
He wanted to cancel the test and simply admit the top 7% of students from all of the city's middle school. Nicole Mader is a research fellow at the Center for New York City Affairs. She analyzed the plan in 2019. If the mayor's plan was enacted and those specialized schools would be much more diverse, um, there would be a, a couple thousand more Black and Latinx students that would have had access to the specialized high schools. And um, we also found that the, the, the demographics and the sort of quality of the, the, the schools that other students would go to instead of going to the specialized high schools was just as high. Parent groups fought back hard against the plan. They said it would make the schools less rigorous and take away the chance for hardworking students to get in. The amendment died in Albany. Taylor McCrew is an advisor to Teens Take Charge. He says this new push by advocacy groups isn't to amend the Heck Calandra Act. Instead, they've written a bill with State Senator Julia Salazar to repeal the act altogether and return the power of school admissions back to the city. I mean, right now, folks from like Syracuse and Rochester and you know places that don't represent New York City are, are have they have power over this, and that doesn't make any sense. The bill is currently in the seven-member State Education Committee. It will need the majority support to move to the floor. McGraw said Salazar and Teens Take Charge have support from three committee members so far. We obviously think this should be a top priority. It's been 50 years since this law was put on the books, and there was a record low number of Black and Latinx students who got offers this year. Um, and it's clear that it's always going to be that way if they don't change this law. McGraw claims his group has plenty of support in the wider assembly. The key is getting the bill through the Education Committee. Laura Zimman served on the New York City Panel for Education Policy until 2016. She says increased public awareness of Black and Latinx issues will put pressure on legislators when it comes to casting their votes. Their stances um, are reflective of where they feel the public opinion that they're responsible for. And usually it's the people organizing and being persistent help influence the shift in public attitude overall. Um, so um, if not this year, maybe next year, I do think it's moving to that way. The committee has not set a date to vote on the bill. Meanwhile, Teens Tech Charge activists like Tatiana Cruz will keep and protesting. We are voting to fight for our freedom. We are voting to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. It is our duty to win. We must love and support each other. Cruz considers herself lucky. She failed the SHSAT but got into Brooklyn Tech through the Discovery Program. It attempts to diversify specialized high schools by reserving seats for low-income students who scored just below the cutoff line. So it was a pretty rigorous, pretty intensive and exhausting, you know, six weeks of math and, and, and English. It was pretty much, um, I think, around five hours a day. My whole summer was kind of shot that year. Despite the Discovery Program, Cruz is the only female Latinx student in her 32-person class. She says that puts an enormous amount of pressure on her to perform, just to prove that she deserves a place there. Haley Zhao, Columbia Radio News. Gun violence has been on the rise across the country this year, and New York City is no exception. So far this year, the city has seen more than 450 shootings by civilians, almost double the number at this time last year. Mayor Bill de Blasio has a plan. It includes training community members to mediate conflict. Some advocates say it's a step in the right direction. But as Jack Stone Truett reports, 
The plan also includes putting more cops on the street, and that has others more critical. Like so many other New York City high schoolers this year, 19-year-old Larry Blackwell has spent a lot of time inside his apartment. He takes a breath and shakes his head just thinking about it. It's just been a lot. And I've been, I've talked to some of my friends. I, I've heard them cry. and like, oh man, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I'm losing my mind. I'm, I'm in the house all the time. He and his mom, Sherry Kaysen, are in their living room, hunched over a laptop on the other side of a Zoom call, like they have been countless times during the last 14 months. They live in Harlem. Before the pandemic, Larry would spend time at nearby Frederick Samuel Community Center playing basketball or helping out younger kids with their homework. In the summer, he helped out with a day camp. But since the pandemic broke out, these outlets have mostly been shut down. His mom is frustrated that they've been living on top of each other, but she knows how hard this year has been for kids. So now we have some of the young ones just, just like stuck. I've seen kids that I went to school with drop out. I've seen... Kids I played with or played against outside on the street, just looking for no good. According to the Center for American Progress, gun violence disproportionately kills young people, especially young black men. And NYPD data shows that shootings in Harlem have almost doubled so far compared to last year. There's no simple explanation for the continued rise in gun violence, but it's clear the pandemic is a big part of it. Mayor de Blasio's Safe Summer NYC plan comes as the city heads into the time of year when shootings are typically highest. Experts cite a number of reasons why. One that is young people have more time on their hands away from school and the structure it provides. In this sense, the pandemic has created one long summer. A sense of uncertainty mixed with isolation from the places that give young people somewhere to go. Something to look forward to. Like the community center Larry used to go to. Those centers served as a place to learn, to grow, to play, to exercise, to have voice. To, for young people to learn and have conflict and resolve conflict. Aisha Sekou is head of Street Corner Resources, a Harlem nonprofit focused on reducing violence. Because you had mediators there, you had, uh, you know, your counselors, and then you had your guidance counselor there. You had go-to people if things in your life uh, were not great. The mayor's plan focuses on three areas, community, cops, and courts. The community element is what excites advocates like Sekou. It includes refurbishing basketball courts and creating jobs for kids in communities struggling with gun violence. It also includes hiring more workers at nonprofits like Sekou's. It's a different model than just adding more police. And it has a name, Cure Violence. The Cure Violence model explicitly adopts a framework that sees gun violence as kind of like a contagion. That's Dr. Jeffrey Butts. He researches youth crime prevention at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He says, for example, a neighborhood shooting can make someone feel vulnerable, so they start carrying a gun for protection. More guns means a higher chance of more shootings, which in turn leads to even more guns, and so on. This anxiety and fear spreads much like an infectious disease, so cure violence workers try to interrupt the transmission by talking to at-risk youth and identifying potential conflicts in order to mediate them before violence occurs. Which is a very different philosophy than a traditional law enforcement approach. Dr. Butt says the most effective way to prevent violence is providing opportunities for young people, whether it be through jobs or education. But if the only tool you offer communities is more patrol cars, then that's what people will take. And the mayor's plan does still use that traditional approach, including expensive microphone sensors to detect gunshots and increased police patrols on the streets. 
Why would you add more police when you know what the police have been doing to our communities? From the harassment, from the brutality. Anthony Beckford is co-founder of Black Lives Matter Brooklyn and a candidate for city council. He says this part of the mayor's plan disregards the changes he and so many others have been demanding. Rather than spend more money on law enforcement as laid out in the plan, Beckford says the city should put that money towards more jobs for kids and local businesses trying to stay afloat during the pandemic. You won't, you won't, don't have the need for cure violence if you provide the resources and services that are needed to not have violence. Aisha Seku says the mayor's plan is a good start, but the approach needs to have a mindset beyond just the pandemic and this summer. We need to create something uh, in our community that has sustainability, that lasts a long time, uh, and we can keep building and improving on it. For Larry Blackwell, the high school senior, summer has unofficially begun. On Saturday, he played basketball at the local community center. It was his first time back in a year. Jack Stone Truitt, Columbia Radio News. For many blind and visually impaired people, guide dogs bring a new level of independence. But during the last year, few trained guide dogs are available for placement with owners. In New Jersey, an organization called The Seeing Eye, just 170 people received guide dogs, a third fewer than normal. As Katie Anastas reports, the pandemic has put much of the training process on hold. Cassandra Hernandez was born with Labor's congenital amaurosis. It's a genetic eye disorder that causes debilitating light sensitivity and farsightedness. She could get by using a cane, but she says it was mentally exhausting. You know, maybe my cane would miss something and I would run into it, or maybe I'd lose my footing when like a, like a manhole or something like that, because they're constantly doing construction in the city. Then Hernandez got her guide dog. He's a yellow lab named Tag. Tag helps her walk on crowded city sidewalks, safely navigate subway platforms, and even run 5Ks. He's trained to step between Hernandez and oncoming traffic. He knows to disobey her if her commands put them in danger. For Hernandez, this was life-changing. I'm not as nervous to go through an airport by myself or take a train to another city. I completely trust this, this animal. I completely trust my dog because New York City is hard. But during the pandemic, subway platforms have been empty, airports deserted, and streets quiet. Zach Gitlin is an outreach manager with Guide Dogs of America, the national organization that connected Hernandez with TAG. He says the lack of the usual crowded environments means it takes longer to train the dogs. The dog that might have been ready within a year and a half is going to take two years, two and a half years. Training guide dogs is a two-stage process. First, volunteers raise them from when they're about eight weeks old to a year old. They help them get accustomed to a wide range of environments, like grocery stores, movie theaters, and restaurants. Then the dogs go back to Guide Dogs of America or a similar organization for four to six months. There they learn to navigate other physical challenges, like construction blocking sidewalks or cars running red lights. The one we have currently, he's our 18th puppy. It's a blast. Lois Gagne is a longtime guide dog puppy raiser. Her last dog was a black Labrador and golden retriever mix named Harry. They're a little softer than a lab. He had a little feathering on his tail. He's a great dog, one of my favorites. Harry was about halfway through his puppy training when the pandemic hit. 
Harry had to learn how to recognize the bumpy yellow edge of a subway platform so he could keep his future handler away from it. The first step was getting him familiar with those kinds of surfaces. But with subway platforms quiet or off-limits, Gagne took Harry to a parking lot where she knew there was a bumpy section of concrete. This morning we're walking on uneven surfaces. Hard to do on my own here, but Harry has zero concerns. In his yellow guide dog vest, Harry waits for instructions. Gagne apologizes to him for how it must feel on his paws. Sorry, it's really rough. But he does it. He walks right alongside her, never pulling on his leash, occasionally looking up at Gagne when she talks. And he's really awesome about walking on loose leash and his normal day-to-day activities. He's being a pretty good boy. Harry, sit. Good sit. All right, let's go. Good boy. Another challenge for guide dogs is staying focused on their job when they see another dog. But since Gagne and Harry couldn't go to crowded places, he had little practice. So Gagne and four other puppy trainers arranged to meet outside Ikea, so the dogs could get used to being around each other. As she comes up to the group, Harry's tail is wagging a mile a minute. He pulls on the leash, something a dog at his level should never do. Getting distracted by other dogs could disqualify them from ever working as a guide. Harry also had to get used to loud city noises. When it was time for his training at the Guide Dog Foundation in Long Island, a trainer took him to a subway station for the first time. The subway train came up and hit the air brakes, and he was terrified and hit the ground. With more work, Harry got better at dealing with noises and other dogs, but his trainers were still concerned he might not fully be ready. When Harry's eventual handler first called looking for a new dog, they said, we don't think we have anybody for you. Um, Our razors haven't been able to go anywhere. But the handler was so experienced, this was his fourth dog, that it seemed like Harry might be a good fit. Other dogs Harry's age will continue training before they're ready to work. As New York reopens, puppy raisers are going out again, and the dogs are learning to navigate a busy city. Zach Gitlin from Guide Dogs of America says trainers are helping the dogs catch up on what they've missed. If we're equating it to an injury, it's not like a wound. It's more of a bruise. Like, it will heal. It's just going to take a little bit more work, a little bit more time. Cassandra Hernandez says over the year of isolation, she saw Tag's training begin to fade. He began to act more like a typical dog. Both of them were eager to re-enter the world. Within the past month, we've been getting back to our old life. And it feels great when, you know, you pull the harness out, Tag will just run into it. She says Tag is more than happy to get out and start working again. Katie Anastas, Columbia Radio News. Eight years ago, just out of college, Kate Stockram had a particularly bad breakup. In the latest piece from our commentary series, she reflects on how she healed after that split. The method included the usual junk food and tears, but also one furry, unwanted responsibility. This is Bruce. He's my cat. He's a big guy, around 20 pounds. He has bright blue eyes and a lot of tan and brown fur that he leaves in tufts around my apartment. He enjoys tearing up the kitchen rug when I'm not looking. Bruce, cut it out but he always apologizes. I love him now, but I didn't when we met eight years ago. That's because when we met, 
I was certain I would never love anyone or anything again. I had moved to Washington, D.C. for a guy who turned out to be cheating on me with one of our mutual friends. Whatever you're picturing as my response, please assume it happened. I cried. I screamed. I ate my body weight in General Tso's chicken. I put my ex's stuff in a white plastic trash bag at the curb. I brought that bag back inside to torture myself by putting on his college t-shirt and rereading a birthday card he wrote me. Then I did it all over again. For months. So when my roommates adopted Bruce, I didn't want him. Not him specifically, just any responsibility for another living thing. At this point, my Chinese takeout spot didn't even have to ask my name when I called. I was barely taking care of myself. Why would I want to take care of this cat? Bruce sensed I wasn't concerned if he lived or died, which is the standard level of indifference cats are known for. He'd found a kindred spirit, and so he set about making me love him. Ignoring the two other roommates who had actually wanted him, Bruce waited by my bedroom door every night. He climbed onto my shoulder as I paced the apartment, ugly crying to Fergie's Big Girls Don't Cry. He didn't even judge me on the irony of my song choice. He meowed whenever I was out of view, and he ran to greet me when I came home from work. Slowly, Bruce fashioned himself into my cat. But also, slowly, he fashioned me into a whole person again. I didn't realize I started being the one to feed him, or that he began sleeping in the crook of my arm at night. It seemed practical that I keep him when my roommates moved on to different cities. And by Christmas, I had decided to rent a car to drive him home with me. Bruce drinks from the faucet instead of a bowl. A pet sitter just wouldn't understand. Becoming responsible for Bruce meant taking care of myself again. Shuttling him to the vet, brushing out his fur, trying to get him to respond to his name. All were things to do instead of moping around feeling sorry for myself. I left the trash bag of my ex's stuff at the curb one final time. I even started seeing someone new. Against a species nature, Bruce offered me affection instead of apathy. Somehow, this indifferent human was retrained by a loving cat. Isn't that right, Bruce? You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Fei Lu. And I'm Leila Dus. As the city's performing arts scene returns, workers at the Metropolitan Opera House are going on strike. As New Yorkers leave behind their pandemic wardrobes, a closer look at the history of the zipper. And in a final installment of our commentary series, a reflection on the evolution of an accent. All that and more, coming up. The Metropolitan Opera will perform for its first audience in 14 months this weekend in Queens and plans to reopen in September for a full season. But first, they need to settle a labor dispute over proposed 30% pay cut to certain union employees at the Met. Jack Stone Truitt went to Lincoln Square today, where the stagehands union led a protest. Hundreds gathered in front of the Metropolitan Opera House today, many in blue or black shirts representing different unions, carrying signs as they marched along Columbus Avenue. Brothers and sisters, good afternoon! Stagehand Union President James Claffey addressed the crowd as cars drove by, honking their support. There was lots of honking. 
and we have to get the, the met opera to the table, make reasonable deals, not take it or leave it, and we go back to work where we belong, putting on the greatest of grand opera on the planet. They need to come to the table. The pandemic has devastated performance arts venues over the past year. The Met says it lost $150 million in revenue and needs to trim costs to compensate. In the spring, management proposed cuts in pay and benefits of up to 30% for stagehands and orchestra members. Teresa Gonzalez is a set artist at the Met. There's been no movement at all in any of the discussions since last spring that began. There's been actually silence for the past couple of months altogether. John is a carpenter and helps build the elaborate sets for the opera. He loves his job and is itching to get back to work. But, he says, the proposed cuts aren't realistic. Most guys here, they spend $600 a month just to get to work. You know, so, so you take away 30%, we can't get to work. You know, we can't feed our families, period. The Met cannot be reached for comment. A statement on their website says half of the reductions they've proposed would be restored whenever ticket revenues and donations reach pre-pandemic levels. Elliot Byron is a member of the Stage Crew Union. He works at other local music venues, though not at the Met. He says many performance centers have asked workers for concessions, but the Met's pay cuts would be deeper and longer term. Yeah, they're being very aggressive about it, and they're asking for, uh, you know, reductions in pay even after the pandemic is over, which is just, in our opinion, not a wise way to go about things. The Chorus Singers Union reached an agreement with the Met Opera management this week, and the Orchestra Union is still in negotiations. The stagehands remain locked out with negotiations on hold. Jackstone Truitt, Columbia Radio News. Now news from another Metropolitan. The Metropolitan Museum of Art announced this week that it will be an early voting site for the upcoming New York State primary elections. It marks the first time in 151 years that the Met will host voters, joining institutions like Lincoln Center, the Brooklyn Museum, and the Museum of the Moving Image. Kim Rice is the interim director of Kokoron School of Arts and Design in Washington, D.C. She joins me today to discuss the potential significance of the Met's decision and how it may influence how other cultural institutions engage with politics moving forward. What is the history of museums and cultural institutions in the U.S. participating in civil-slash-political activities? You know, I think that it is a fairly recent phenomena of the last honestly, couple of years. American museums are really part of sort of the civil fabric. And this is probably one of the most explicit ways that they demonstrate that. And what do you think prompted the Metropolitan Museum of Art to, you know, choose to take on this role for the first time in 151 years? You know, I think the pandemic has changed a lot of things. You know, maybe museums have, this has been sort of a wake-up call because it has been incredibly disruptive. And I would think that one of the ways that leadership might react would be realizing, you know, we all need each other and it's very important that museums, you know, demonstrate their relevance and also be part of the city and the the town or wherever they're located, part of that life. So I think it's actually great that the Met is going to do this. What do you think are some of the more specific obstacles and challenges that museums will face simultaneously serving as a cultural institution, but also a place to you know, facilitate voting? They have to be big enough because you have to have, be able to give 
the voter privacy in order to be able to cast their vote. You know, they have to sort of separate it from the activities that are going on in the museum too, so that people aren't people who are coming in to look at the collection and things aren't disrupted by this. You know, traditionally, lots of museums and cultural institutions have this sense of, you know, elitism attached. Do you think this desire to, you know, become not only more inclusive culturally, but also socially will encourage these institutions to take on more active civil and political roles moving forward? I do. I do think so. I mean, when I was first working in museums, we were always pushed to be neutral. And neutrality isn't really possible, I don't think, in the time that we live in right at this moment, you know, given the political tumult that we've been through in the last four or five years. You know, museums like museums are very influential and can be very influential institutions. Visitors trust them. They think that much of what they learn from them is sort of the truth in quotes. And so it, I mean they could they could play they can continue to play or play even a more important role in this area. So yes, I think you're absolutely right. This is the next step. Um, it's really exciting. It's not going to be without controversy, I'm sure, but it's what we should do. That was Kim Rice, the interim director of Kokoran School of Arts and Design at the Columbian College of Arts and Sciences. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thank you so much. Seaweed has been harvested for thousands of years by indigenous communities. Now there's renewed interest in growing these coastal crops on a larger scale. As Arcelia Martin reports, Long Island ocean farmers and entrepreneurs are turning to kelp in an effort to combat climate change. A few years ago, kelp is the new kale was printed across headlines and t-shirts. Farmers and chefs were getting big name press because the seaweed was supposed to be the new it food. But the guy who helped popularize that slogan is taking it back. I used to say kelp is the new kale and I was wrong. It's something else. Um, I think it's something more more powerful. It's more in this sort of in tune of this new era of climate change and climate solutions. That's Bren Smith. He's the founder of Greenwave, a nonprofit that advocates for sustainable ocean farming. For Smith and other ocean conservationists, kelp is more than a trendy green. It's the future of farming. Kelp is is something that we can use in this moment to help address climate change, create jobs, and feed the planet. Like, you don't have to pick. Around the globe, seaweed farms are rapidly expanding, and the U.S. is starting to catch up. There are operations across California, the Pacific Northwest, Alaska, New England. Farmers on Long Island are using recently developed sustainable ocean farming techniques. Three years ago, Stony Brook University scientists wanted to see if kelp could be grown in shallow coastal waters off Long Island. So they gave Paul McCormick a call, who owns Great Gun Oyster Farm on Moriches Bay on the South Shore. McCormick was intrigued. He had heard about kelp and knew it could grow during the winter season. Months, he can't grow oysters. So with the help of the scientists, he planted his first lines of kelp out on his farm. It's three acres and the water is shallow. It gets to be only about four feet deep. There's a yellow buoy rocking with the water. 
you can see a pair of large holmes with white trim across the bay. To set up the lines of kelp, they hand-screw two anchors into the sediment, each 100 feet apart from each other in the water. And then they stretch a rope across those two anchor points really tight. And then the seed spools will come out. Um, that's very thin um, line that's wrapped around a tube, a PVC tube. Kind of like a, looks like a toilet paper roll almost. They pull the tube along and the seed will unravel right onto the tightly pulled line. Then they wait. The plant just takes off. By the time March hits, it's, it's like exponential the growth. It's, it's amazing. On a windy day last April, Stony Brook scientist Michael Dole went to check McCormick's kelp lines. All right, so let's just look down the line. Hey, hold it up again, Annie. Look at this. Wow. His daughter Annie is helping, standing waist deep wearing a sleeveless black wetsuit over a white hoodie. Wow, look at that. Whoa! <laughs> wow. And then going out this way. So, yeah, we got a serious amount of kelp here. On McCormick's farm, they're going sugar kelp, or Saccharina latissima. The kelp looks like shiny brown lasagna noodles. It's salty, rich, and slightly nutty. When I first ate the kelp, I said, this is probably the, the most delicious vegetable I've ever eaten. Not just in terms of taste, but in terms of texture and just the way it felt in your mouth. And it's remarkable stuff. It really is. It's incredible. McCormick has already gotten calls from restaurants who want to buy a few pounds of kelp for their kitchen. But McCormick said his small operation could grow 100,000 pounds of wet seaweed. There's really the three big F's in, in kelp farming, um, food, fertilizer, and fuel. That's John Barrett, a lifelong fisherman from Long Island. This year, he launched Montauk Seaweed Supply, a kelp and seaweed fertilizer company. Barrett says using seaweed as fertilizer can undo some of the environmental damage brought on by conventional landscaping and farming. Everywhere Barrett looks out on Long Island, he sees synthetic fertilizers. To lawns, golf courses, certain forms of agriculture, vineyards, municipalities, universities, anywhere you look to see green and, you know, landscapes, there's most likely some type of synthetic fertilizer being used. And because of how Long Island is set up, the runoff from the landscaping and septic systems gets into the water, creating a harmful surplus of nitrogen. That's creating hypoxic events, algal blooms, fish die-offs. Kelp is rich in nitrogen that it draws from the seawater itself. In the process, reducing the overall levels brought on by the runoff. So when kelp is used in fertilizers, plants get the nitrogen they need to grow, and the level of nitrogen in the water could remain steady. Barrett says it may be possible to smoothly shift agriculture and landscaping industries from using synthetic fertilizers to using organic ones, like those based on kelp. The, the best case scenario is almost just like a, a magic trick where you like, boom, pull out the bads, push in the good, and then every, and the gears just keep turning and everyone's like, what just happened there? And you're kind of like, nothing really, but really it's huge what just happened there, you know? So that's the whole um, kind of art and science that we're trying to pull off here. Many challenges in manufacturing and marketing need to be addressed before they can pull off that trick. But the demand is already growing. Smith and his GreenWave team are teaching farmers how to grow kelp. He says there are more people interested in learning the techniques than they can keep up with. We have a waiting list for our training program of 8,000 people in the U.S. Just in the U.S. And we have requests to start farms in 110 countries. Like, 
It's insane. GreenWave plans to train and support 10,000 local ocean farmers to grow kelp over the next decade. We're part of this moment of this long history of not growing fish, but of growing things that actually breathe life back into the ocean. But before kelp can be sold commercially at scale, one legal hurdle remains, getting the official green light from the state. Farmers like McCormick already have permits to grow and sell oysters and mussels, but seaweed isn't on that list. A bill now in the state Senate's Environmental Conservation Committee, nicknamed the Kelp Bill, would add seaweed to the existing statute that allows for shellfish farming. Arcelia Martin, Columbia Radio News. Now another installment in our series, New York Moments. I'm a volunteer at the New York Aquarium. I, uh, I'm a scuba diver. Andrew Elgert, aquarium tank cleaner. And we go in and we clean each tank, you know, we go and vacuum, we scrub algae off, we clean the glass. I'm in the shark tank. We are literally a foot away from some of the big boys. They swim by your head all the time, but they're pleasant, they're beautiful. Yeah, and then you're, you know, like you're swimming with the penguins, uh, the harbor seals, the sea lions they take out. You don't swim with the sea lions, they're too big. So that's my, those are my Mondays. You're listening to Uptown Radio, podcast available Thursdays at 5 p.m. Next week, New York State will lift capacity restrictions on most businesses. And we all know what that means, putting on real pants. After over a year of Zoom meetings and sweats, New Yorkers are zipping up their office wear again. Kate Stockram sets out to report on National Zipper Day, only to find out the date's origin, much like the fastener itself, is more complicated than it first appears. If you want to talk zippers, Fred Klingener is a good place to start. The, uh, the subject line in the email was, uh, do you want to talk about zippers? And, uh, and my response was, sure. Klingener is the grandson of Gideon Sundback, the inventor of the modern zipper. He's an engineer himself and takes zippers seriously. By the way, zipper people don't call themselves zipper people. They're fastener people. Okay, zipper people, not a thing. Fastener people, absolutely. Yeah. And you'll appreciate the Talon fastener even more after you've worn that suit a while. A company called Talon produced the short film in 1938 to convince button people to become fastener people. I guess you're right. It does make the trousers look a lot neater and smarter. You bet it does. The film doesn't mention any National Zipper Day on April 29th. So I asked Klingener about the date's meaning. I frankly didn't know what April 29th was. It doesn't relate to uh, anything we think of as, uh, as foundations of the industry. That industry is zippers, with over $4 billion in sales in the U.S. alone. And we means fastener people. Klingener told me he'd be happy to talk more. But first, I should read Zippers, the book on the fastener's history. <laughs> Zippers is over 250 pages long, 25 more if you count the references and footnotes. Clearly, someone had been down this road before me, and that someone was Robert Friedel. Friedel also taught the history of science and technology at the University of Maryland for 35 years. Why write about zippers, Professor Friedel? Uh, the deeper you get into it, the more intriguing it becomes, at least to me. Friedel agrees that Sunback, Klingener's grandfather, invented the modern zipper. Sunback's first design was nicknamed the Placo, and in Friedel's book, you can see the Placo fasteners patent was issued on April 29, 1913, the date of National Zipper Day. Great. Mystery solved, right? Wrong. 
I suggest that the, the patent date is, is a, a perfectly worthless uh, date to hang anything on because it, it depends on, you know, the lawyer's schedule and the patent examiner's schedule and, and all that other stuff that, that has nothing to do or very little to do with the invention itself. Plus, Friedel's book points out the April 29th design just didn't work that well. It still required a violent tug to pull up and down. But it was an improvement on the zipper that came before it. That's right, before it. It turns out the zipper wasn't born of a sudden burst of inspiration. It was more of an evolution. It's kind of a, uh, a nutty notion, okay, that you're going to have this little slide device that will open and close things for you, okay? And it takes... 20 years to get it right. Friedel says another inventor, Whitcomb Judson, designed a fastener he called a class blocker way back in 1893, and then improved it and patented it again in 1905. That second design was called the Security Fastener, and it was so fickle it had to be removed before each washing. Sure it won't jam? Certainly not. Try it. Won't the rust? Not a chance. With a better sense of historical complexities, I went back to Fred Klingener, I told him we celebrate his grandfather's invention on the day it was patented, but Fred countered. Uh, March 20th, the hook was number two. That was March 20th, uh, 1917. Well, you can't win them all. March 20th was the patent date for his grandfather's model hookless number two, an improvement on his earlier April 29th design. Fred emailed me a picture of the number two patent, and I had to admit, it's the first fastener that truly looked like a modern zipper. And given its sales, it seems it worked better, too. I don't know. I don't win much for these newfangled ideas. Well, I'd certainly advise you to try it for a couple of weeks. Then I know you'll never want to go back to the old way. The more I learned about its history, the less likely it seemed there could be a single zipper day. There were better and worse designs, a variety of patent dates, and a historian who said we shouldn't even trust those dates. Plus, I soon learned, the term zipper wasn't even trademarked until the 1920s, a decade after the supposed zipper day. So I started over again. If you type in National Zipper Day on Google, one of the top hits is a librarian's post in Michigan. Thank you for calling the Farmington Community Library. Good afternoon, Children's Services. This is Maria speaking. How may I help you? The kids that visit Maria Showich Gallup know her as Miss Maria. She's always on the lookout for interesting events to share with them. And that's how she landed on Zipper Day. She pulled her primary source for that date, a two-inch thick, dark blue reference book called Chase's Calendar of Events. Okay, this is an, an old one. They have probably a more current one upstairs in the adult department. But yeah, so they, they do, um, they have like everything and just like anything in here. A publisher's weekly blurb on the cover of this year's Calendar of Events calls it one of the most impressive reference volumes in the world. Miss Maria showed me the entry for National Zipper Day. Without any explanation, the book marks the date of the patent as April 29th. Another dead end. Even if April 29th isn't the best date for Zipper Day, I just want to know who decided it was. But as I dug deeper, it became clear that what I, a librarian, and hundreds of Google results believe to be fact might just be a mistaken historical footnote. Disappointed but determined, I reached out to someone who doesn't know anything about the history of zippers but who does specialize in finding the sources of information. The idea that there is an authentic National Zipper Day, when you think about it for two seconds, is slightly absurd. Emily Bell is the founding director of the Tau Center for Digital Journalism. She's made a living researching the intersection of tech and reporting. As for Zipper Day... 
I think I would call it marketing. It feels like something that was generated in order to draw attention to a product to create a sales opportunity. I admit I hadn't really considered this. Zipper Day might have just started out as a marketing gimmick, one that after many years began to take on the weight of fact. You know, I'm, I'm glad to see that you fellows are really sold on this idea. You'll find most men accept it without question. I didn't mean for this to become so philosophical. It started with zippers. But Bell says my quest is an example of how hard it is to pull truth out of an increasingly complex pool of information. So I think what's happened is you've start, you, you're covering what you think is a fun story and you have fallen into a rabbit hole, which is how do we know what we know? And who is sending us messages and why? Where do they come from? And, and can we trace the source of them? National Zipper Day may be a marketing ploy, and it may very well have some basis in historical fact albeit facts scattered across patent records, reference books, and websites. But at least with Zipper Day, that confusion doesn't matter much, unless you're a fastener person. I don't think anybody is going to march on the Capitol because of National Zipper Day. But the steps you went through in trying to establish, is this thing that it, I, I'm told is true? Is it really true? How do we know what we know? That's at the heart of this whole era of information disruption. So next time you're about to share a post or a tweet or reach out to the grandson of a notable inventor about a supposed holiday, just remember to ask yourself first, is this another National Zipper Day? Kate Stockram, Columbia Radio News. The coronavirus pandemic kept millions of us locked down and indoors. We couldn't see anyone. We couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't do the things we most love to do. In the last of our series of commentaries, Haley Jow tells us how she missed travel so much she ended up pinning for a travel nightmare. My trip to Chile ticked all the boxes for the vacation from hell. Traveling with someone I didn't really know? Check. It was my first year in college, and I'd been dating this guy for about four months. Long enough to know him, but long enough to travel with him? I guess I'd find out. Taking the kind of vacation I don't usually take? Check. Boyfriend wanted to go hiking in Patagonia. I'm more of a beach day and city tour kind of traveler, but the romantic fantasy of being stranded alone with my boyfriend under starry skies surrounded by snowy peaks, that image I made up in my head persuaded me. Lost luggage? Check. It was a 10-hour flight with a layover in Toronto. Not too bad, but when we arrived in Santiago, I found myself bagless, without a toothbrush or a spare pair of socks to my name. Luckily, Santiago has an H&M. Travel sickness? Check. The moment we touched down, boyfriend began running a fever, which kept both of us confined to our room for the entire trip. Fortunately, I brought my laptop with me, but uh-oh, no Wi-Fi? Check. Luckily, I have my hard drive loaded with 10 seasons of friends. Doctor who didn't speak either English or Chinese? Check. Cancel return flight? Check. It turns out you can't connect through Canada without a visa if you're a Chinese national traveling to Boston from Chile. It's hard to imagine a trip where so many things went wrong. At the time, it was a nightmare. We had to spend hundreds of extra dollars on new tickets. We had to make an extra stop in Miami on the way home. To this day, we have no idea what weird bug my boyfriend got. Like I say, 
the vacation from hell. We went on a break not long after that. But after a sedentary year, first quarantining in my apartment in Boston for three months, and then locked down in a tiny studio apartment on the Upper West Side, after all that isolation, that vacation doesn't seem so hellish now. My boyfriend is not my boyfriend anymore, but I found I kind of miss having him around. I miss lounging in our hotel rooms, watching Friends, laughing at Chandler's awkward jokes. I miss the long conversation we had about nature, about humanity. I miss so many things about that trip: trying to understand the doctor, rushing for flights we nearly missed, even arguing with the airline staff at the check-in desk in Santiago. I realize now that while those experiences were uncomfortable at time, they made me feel alive. Travel is supposed to be fun and exciting, but quite often it isn't. Quite often it's exhausting and frustrating. Even scary, losing your phone at a nightclub in Mexico City, getting lost in Yosemite National Park, walking through a dark alley in Athens with weird men staring at you—that's just part of life. And now that this pandemic is waning and I'm fully vaccinated, I can't wait to start living again. To me, that means traveling wherever I go. Maybe I'll even give Chile another try. Well, that's our show. We'll be signing off until next year. Executive producer Renee Roden ran our show. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Nicole McNulty, with help from assistant producer Katie Anastas. Senior editor Megan Zaraz and assistant editor Kate Stockham led our copy team. Haley Chow managed our website today, and Kat Smith brought us today's news. Our instructors Sally Hershep, Patty Hirsch, and Ben Shapiro advised our staff. I'm Fei Lu, and I'm Leila Dos. Uptown Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and uptownradio.com on Thursday evenings. We'll return next February. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thank you for listening.